Well, good morning, gang. It is Tuesday morning. I was not with you last week because I was in uh, San Diego uh, preparing for the Here We Still Stand conference at the time, which we held last week, and thankfully seemed to go off without a hitch, even though this was our first time going entirely online and really using um, entirely new uh, formats that uh, none of us were particularly used to, but thanks be to God, it all went pretty well, and Hopefully some of you were able to join us there and uh, benefit from uh, really some phenomenal presentations from, of course, some very uh, uh, excellent speakers and uh, what an excellent topic. I mean, we talked about the freedom of the Christian because this year, 500 years ago, is when Luther wrote his great treatise on the freedom of the Christian. And so uh, it was great to be there. It was great to be a part of that together, uh, sort of bunkered up all together. But um Glad to be back here with you today. Um, had a little bit of a dilemma this week because the usually, you know, as we've been going over for the last number of weeks, um, I go over the Old Testament passage with you for the upcoming lectionary uh, series of texts. Well, this week there is no Old Testament passage. Uh, it's actually a short little passage from Revelation 14 in the lectionary this week. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I'll look at the psalm. But then um, the Psalm, Psalm 46, it's a wonderful one, is something that I went over fairly recently, actually. Uh, and it just so happens that our good friend Chad Bird is going into that uh, text in much more detail uh, already. He's already released a video this week for it. So I thought, okay, well, that leaves me with either the gospel or the epistle text. I'll leave it to your preacher most likely to bring you the gospel text this Sunday. So I'm going to bring you the epistle text, and I'm happy to do so because this is one of those absolutely fantastic seminal texts of the scriptures that explains to us, indeed, how it is we are saved in great detail. So I don't want to say anything more than that, except to say that there couldn't be a more appropriate passage for us to read in light of the fact that this upcoming Sunday is Reformation Sunday, Luther would call this passage sort of the heart of the very heart of the Bible. This is how important he saw this text, and for that matter, this book. So, Romans chapter 3, verse 19, I need a cup of coffee and a little bit of a sip first. No slurping, although I was tempted. All right, Romans 3, 19, it reads like this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, that's a purpose statement, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, 
but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. End of reading. Well, uh, if there is an overarching theme to this scripture and I think to um, scripture in general as it describes one of our biggest problems, it is that we are naturally liable to stand in judgment before God. And as a result of that, each of us is in need, every single human being is in need of somehow finding acquittal before that heavenly courtroom. The scriptures obviously paint us in an unflattering light to say the least. Though we may never have murdered anyone physically with our thoughts, Jesus says we have, we have lied, we have cheated, and at least in our minds, we've broken God's law a million times over. We're told that in the passage, really just before the one we read today, that none is righteous, that we have all sinned in thought, word, and deed, and stand condemned guilty for our crimes against the universe's one true sovereign. And yet, this sovereign makes it abundantly clear that the one thing we need to be acquitted is not to simply be let off the hook for what the law demands of us, but to actually be righteous in his sight, to actually have fulfilled that law. It's that or else face the punishment for offending an eternal God, eternal wrath. That is unless there is, in fact, some way of being acquitted. So the question on the table as we look through this passage today is how can we who are indeed guilty be acquitted of what amount to eternal crimes? Well, of course, many think that it's in some way, shape, or fashion being obedient to the commands of God that will ultimately get us off the hook. And this is one of those ideas, I think it's pretty rare, but sometimes an idea comes along that kind of unites both the quasi-religious and the super-religious folks among us. You ask a quasi-religious person how they know they'll go to heaven someday, which I've asked quite a bit in my evangelism over the years in New York City. Uh, in other words, how they're gonna be acquitted and they'll probably give you an answer, something like, my good outweighs my bad, uh, so I know God will let me in if there's a God at all. At the same time, you ask a super religious person what they need to get into heaven, again, to be acquitted of their sin, and you'll hear them say something like, well, you need to be really good in order to get into heaven. You need to go above and beyond in your goodness. But both of them are essentially saying the same thing, right? And that makes sense because it is the hallmark of natural man's religion. It's why every other religion, in fact, teaches that very thing to some degree or another. Be good enough, God will let you off the hook. You'll be acquitted for your crimes. Be really good, and I guess really get acquitted for your crimes. Follow God's law, everything will work out. Now, at one point, this was certainly the mindset with our good reformer, the good Dr. Martin Luther. Before he found out the answer uh, to how he could be acquitted, he would spend hours every day in the confessional with his father confessor, giving great detail about all the sins that he had struggled with in thought, word, and deed. With the words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, all the time, perfectly ringing through his head, he couldn't help but think of all the ways in which he didn't measure up. And so even after he was done, he reports years later, that he would catch himself on the way back to going home and turn around to confess yet one more sin. 
And there we begin to see the problem with the method of believing that your obedience is somehow going to measure up at all, that your obedience can lead to your acquittal at all. And that is, you and I can never be good enough. I remember a friend of mine really getting this quite well. He was uh, beginning to attend a church, was getting to know more and more of who Jesus was and what God was all about. Nevertheless, he was you know, noticing that he uh, still constantly struggled with obedience to God, that it wasn't something that, that happened with ease all the time, or for that matter, much of the time. And one day I asked him how it was going, and just in a flurry of frustration, he said, I don't know what's up with God. He gives us these commands, and he's got to know that I can't follow them, but then he's going to punish me for it? How's that fair? Well, you know, what was happening is my friend was coming to terms with the radical nature of obedience to God's law. It's all or nothing, folks. It really is. And that's, frankly, what God's law is meant to do. Again, take, take you back to verse 19. The law's purpose is not ultimately to make us more obedient towards our acquittal, but in fact, the law's purpose is that we would recognize our guilt. Its ultimate purpose is that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, no more excuses. The law comes, tells us where we failed, or at least holds the bar up, holds the standard high. And if we have one ounce of honesty in us, then we recognize we have not done it. And so in response to this reality, some have said, well, I guess if I can't be acquitted by following God's law, then maybe acquittal can come by simply lessening the law's demands. And I got to say, that's an idea that we most certainly want to get behind. Throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of God's people, for that matter, all throughout the Old Testament, this has been many a ways preacher of uh, preaching God's divine law. Instead of proclaiming we have to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, etc., we might say something like, well, if you try to love God as much as you can, then you're on the right track. In this sort of scheme, then, the way acquittal from God happens, well, is basically as long as you're doing the best you can, you're okay. Preach this way, then the law becomes something similar to Benjamin Franklin's dictum, or supposedly Benjamin Franklin. You know, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but there's a famous statement that you've all heard, God helps those who help themselves. Or to put it another way, from one religious scholar named Joseph Smith, a.k.a. founder of Mormonism, for we know that we are saved by grace after all that we can do, end quote. The message makes sense. You get the logic of it. I mean, although we haven't determined yet from our text what it is that will acquit us of our guilt before God, we have determined that it can't come from perfect obedience since we're not perfect, so we can alter their meaning to make them just barely attainable. In fact, that's what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did, and that's what many religious leaders of our day do as well. You just have to lessen it a little bit, soften it, make it accessible. But Luther and others responded by pointing out that just because following the law does not save us, we ought not lessen its force one iota. Why? Was it to be mean? Was it to be harsh? No. Because only when the law is preached in its 
full force does it force us to deal with the gravity of our sin and thus our need for a savior. It shows us how we ought to live and more importantly, how we have it. Again, listen to Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The word for knowledge there could be, um, <clears throat> oh, I, I guess you could say recognition of sin. God's law is a, is a mirror that shows us our shortcomings and failures. It reveals to us our guilt. The fact is we need to be reminded of our sin on an ongoing basis, even after we've become believers, because we are simultaneously saint and sinner, as Luther famously said. If we don't hear the law in this way, then we lead people to believe that somehow they can contribute to their acquittal. A guy I've never met, never come across, and only have followed on Twitter for a little while, named John Dink, once wrote a brief essay on the problem of cheap law preaching. And I thought it was so insightful that, well, I'll quote it for you today. This is why we can't simply lessen the law's force. He writes, God's law, costly law, never negotiates with sinners. It is holy and righteous and good. But it is not patient with lawbreakers. It is not kind to the ungodly. It keeps every record of wrongdoing. He continues, cheap law weakens God's demand for perfection and in doing so breathes life into the old creature and his quest for a righteousness of his own making. And what I'm telling you is this, what doesn't kill him makes him stronger. Lowering the bar lets the old Adam peek into the promised land. It allows the flesh to survive by rebelling in a form of external piety. Cheap law tells us that we've fallen, but there's good news. We can get back up again. It makes the empty promise of resurrection through our improvement instead of our death. So good, end quote, so good. Thank you, John Dick. As tempting as it may be to lessen God's demands so that we might acquit ourselves, judging ourselves to be just worthy enough to pass over the bar, it simply can't be, folks. The law is what the law is, and we are not given the option of acquitting ourselves. If it's going to happen, we must somehow find the mercy of another. God's demand is perfection, and the law preached in all its seeming holy pickiness is what reminds us of that. I've had good illustrations of this in my life. I remember some years ago, I was driving in my mother-in-law's neighborhood, quiet little neighborhood, no cars on the road, driving my family away from my mother-in-law's house, and I stop at the crosswalk, at the stop sign, look around, see no person, see nothing, begin to move forward. Not going fast, not driving like a maniac. I got my kids in the car, I'm being safe. And all of a sudden I hear whoop, and I get pulled over. I'm totally mystified as to why I'm being pulled over. I figure maybe there's a taillight or something out. Nope, no taillight, turns out, when I had pulled up to the crosswalk, my front tires had just barely gone into the first line of the crosswalk. Now, I'm not saying in the crosswalk. I'm saying my front tires were just over the edge of the white paint that begins the crosswalk. And I thought, my goodness gracious. I, I was not happy. <laughs> it was, I, thought, I thought the police officer was being ticky-tack. 
In fact, I called one of the leaders in my church at the time, I was the pastor, and I said, do you think, does this guy have the right to do this? I mean, this is crazy. You know, I'm hoping to like find a way out of having to pay this ticket for going an inch over into the crosswalk line. And my friend's first response, being a police officer for many, many years, well, were your tires in the line? <laughs> yes, they were. Well, technically, he's like, listen, I wouldn't have given a ticket for that, but technically, you're guilty. That's what the law does. The law doesn't bend. Yes, in people's hands, they may try and bend it. But in fact, I was guilty. The law condemns us, and we don't like it. We don't want it that way. We want to find wiggle room. No wiggle room. No flexibility. It shows us how we should live. But by doing so, it shows us our guilt and our inability to acquit ourselves. As John Zala said, God's office is at the end of your rope, and the law brings us to the end of our rope. So we've established so far from verses 19 and 20 that we will not be acquitted by anything we do, whether it be living perfectly or trying to find a way to lessen the law's demands. It's just not going to happen. Well... There's only one other option, and that's where, we, that's where we find in verse 21. Again, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, I know it's going to be a big shocker to hear this, folks, from me. But if you're going to be acquitted, it happens solely through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It happens solely through the good news, the gospel. The gospel that tells us Jesus Christ lived in our place, took the punishment we deserve by dying on the cross, and rose to new life, defeating all of your sins so that he could graciously declare you not only not guilty in his presence, but innocent, righteous, acquitted. This was essentially the formulation Luther and the Reformers came up with when describing our salvation. They said it was by grace alone, through faith alone, solely on account of Christ alone. Look at verse 25. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does that mean? Well, the word for propitiation here was actually used to describe the, the cover on the Ark of the Covenant. The word, same word for propitiation is the word that we translate in the Old Testament, mercy seat. Now, what would happen each year in the Jewish calendar is on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies, the place where God was said to be present, the place where the ark was, and he would sprinkle blood from the sacrifice on that mercy seat, on that cover. And because of this blood shed on behalf of God's people, their sins would be atoned for and they would be declared forgiven. So what Paul is saying here, when he uses this, this word for propitiation, is that because Christ spills his blood, our sin is atoned for. Because of his blood, we now find mercy. And why did Jesus do it? Verse 26 answers, it was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, on Christ, God 
takes out his justice against sin so that in acquitting us, he can still maintain his justice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 spells it out perfectly. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Luther and others referred to this as the great or happy exchange. And I'll tell you, folks, the longer you look in the scriptures, you see this exchange language used all the time. One of my favorite quotes from Luther goes like this when describing what Jesus takes upon himself at the cross. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying, You be Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner, which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief, which hanged upon the cross. And briefly, you be the person which has committed the sins of all men. See, therefore, that you pay and satisfy for them. Here now comes the law and says, I find Jesus a sinner. Therefore, let him die upon the cross. And so he sets upon him and kills him. But by this means, the whole world is purged and cleansed from all sins. And of course, we attain this acquittal simply by faith in this Jesus. Verse 22 says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe they are indeed declared righteous. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Faith simply is saying or trusting what Christ has done is for you. For you, for you, for you. If you can say that, you are acquitted before the heavenly judgment of God. And you will never be condemned, ever, ever again. All right, we'll stop it there. Romans 3, verses 19 through 28. Probably can tell one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I could go on for another 45 minutes, but I don't want to keep you all day. I hope this devotion has been um, uplifting to you and encouraging. May you have a blessed day, and I'll look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you.